week we talked about the bad news of hell, and this morning we're going to talk about the good news of heaven. In preparation for this, I had been obviously reading different things in the Bible, but just last night I finished the last book in the Tales of Narnia, The Last Battle, the last chapter of The Last Battle. If you have a copy of that book and you even just want to read one chapter, it probably won't be as powerful if you don't read the whole book, but just beautiful description of a possibility of what we are anticipating and what we are waiting for. About 15 years ago, I went through a Neil Postman binge. Uh, Neil Postman is now passed away, but then he was the media sociologist from New York University. He wrote a number of books, probably the most famous one was called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And one of his books called How to Watch the TV News, Neil Postman wrote this. Commercials tell us as much about society. They tell us so much about society that we suspect that archaeologists studying the artifacts of Western culture 200 years from now will find our commercials the richest source of information about our fears, about our motivations, and about our exaltations. And so it got me asking, what do our commercials tell us about us? If people are to discover these in 100, 200 years from now, what are our commercials going to tell people in the future about our society today? Well, there are a number of things that they probably will tell other people, but one of the things that they will clearly tell people is that we are a society that likes stuff. We are obsessed with stuff. And not just stuff. We like brighter stuff. And bolder stuff. And bigger stuff. Just look at the size of the average family house today. We have smaller families with less kids. And we live in much bigger spaces than a generation or two generations ago. And it's ironic that we don't seem to care so much about better stuff, just more stuff and bigger stuff. For all of our talk about caring about the environment much more than our parents' generation did, well, we just had garbage day in Delta this week, and it makes me question that whole idea of whether or not we really do care about our environment more. The amount of stuff that we just throw away. We've used it for maybe a year or two, and then we just move on and buy other things. The gods of our society have become stuff. And like the idols of old, they eventually get thrown into the garbage as we move on to shinier gods. Because none of the gods of stuff are immortal. Even the god Energizer, who comes in the form of a bunny eventually dies and becomes hazardous waste. It is all coming to an end. Your promotions will be forgotten. Your money is going to be used by someone else. Your great-great-grandchildren will not remember who you were, and unfortunately, they might not care either. Your youth will fade. Your abs will turn to flab. From dust 
You came and to dust you will return, or as we said a few weeks ago, water to water, liquid to liquid. James says the hot sun rises and dries up in the grass. The flower withers and its beauty fades away. So all wealthy people will fade away with all of their achievements. Just like the dead Energizer bunny you see. And yet people have been driven by a desire to find that elusive fountain of youth. It's one of the key drivers behind all religions. It's also one of the key drivers behind online shark pills that you can buy. Some have come up with different ideas about what the afterlife is going to be like. Some of the Greek philosophers came up with the idea of an immortal ghostly soul that lives inside and can live outside of us. Hindu sages have taught reincarnation, where we come back as either rats or dogs or cows or trees. Buddhists teach that we eventually become absorbed into the energy of the universe. Others have simply tried to allow their name to live on in their children. Other guys, like the Apostle Paul, believed that there was going to be a day when the dead would be bodily raised up again and then live forever. And in amongst all of these different thoughts of the afterlife came ideas of heaven and hell and purgatory and Hades and the river Styx and Sheol and Nirvana and paradise and Abraham's bosom and limbo and on and on and on we go. And then depending on what you mean by each of those terms, and you mash them all together, we have a plethora of views about the afterlife. Even in Christian circles, elaborate ideas about the afterlife get read into just a few Bible verses, and then whole books and movements and even heresy trials are inspired on people's ideas. That's why when people ask me, Pastor Steph, do you believe in heaven? The first thing I say to them is, what do you mean by heaven? Because we need to define our terms. Because I certainly do believe in heaven, but I might not believe in the heaven that you believe in. Now, I must admit that for the longest time, the idea of going to heaven freaked me out. I mean, it just totally terrified me. The thought of singing in a choir for all of eternity, as heaven was once described to me, seemed more like a version of hell to me. I can totally relate to Mark Twain's character, Huck Finn, who said this, Miss Watson, a tolerably swim old, slim old maid, was going to live so as to go to the good place. Well, I couldn't see no advantage in going where she was going, so I made up my mind that I wouldn't try. Now, she had got a good start, and she went on and told me all about the good place. She said all a body would have to do there was to go all day long with a harp and sing forever and ever and ever. So I didn't think much of it, but I never said so. I asked her if she reckoned Tom Sawyer would go there, and she said, not by a considerable sight. 
I was glad about that because I wanted him to be with me, and I wanted us to be together. I can relate to Huck Finn with some of the ideas that I've been told about heaven. But fortunately, Miss Watson's version of heaven has very little biblical support. In order to understand heaven, as I said just a few moments ago, we're going to have to define our terms. If we're going to understand what's being said correctly. Heaven, and the word heaven, is actually used in about three different ways in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament. And it's important that we understand the term heaven and how it's going to be used this morning because many times we mix up the ideas by not understanding the different ways that the term is being used in the New Testament. Just like terms today have a multiple of meanings, and so we need to know context. If I got a letter from somebody, let's say that uh, somebody, I'll put, uh, Juliet, I'll put you on the spot there. Or maybe Paul put you on the spot. One of you guys write me a letter, and then you sign it love. Well, that could have all kinds of different implications. It could mean friendship, it could mean something inappropriate's going on, it could mean something uh, in regards to other types of things, maybe a golf score, you know, love 40, remember the, the, not golf, sorry, tennis, I got the wrong sport there, tennis, it could mean that, so you see, the word love can be used in different ways, the same term, well, it's the same with heaven as well, so, on some occasions, when the Bible uses heaven, it's simply referring to the realm, or the reign of God. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the realm or the reign of God. When used this way, we need to recognize that we're not talking about a place. The Bible is very clear that God is everywhere. God does not live in heaven as if heaven is some place somewhere else. And is apart from us. Augustine correctly reminds us of this when he says, We say that God is in heaven and on earth. As he himself says in scripture. I fill heaven and earth. We do not mean that there is one part of God in heaven and another part on earth. But he is all in heaven and all on earth. And not at different times, but both at once. God's heavenly realm, God's reign, is all around us. It's invisible, it penetrates and it permeates the visible realm, that God's heavenly realm, his heavenly reign, is all among us. It's right here, right now, just that we cannot see it. The second way that heaven is used in the Bible is in reference to the galaxies and the cosmos. When Genesis talks about God creating the heavens and the earth, here, heavens is referring to the visible sky. The galaxies, the stars, what you can see when you look in through a telescope. God created all of that space and everything that is in it. And God is certainly everywhere in that space as well. Third, and the heaven that we are going to be talking about today is that ultimate place where followers of Jesus go after they die and are resurrected back to life again 
at the second coming of Christ. This is also referred to in the Bible as the new heavens and the new earth. That's the heaven we are going to be talking about today. Our ultimate destination. This heaven is the heaven that we read about in Revelation chapter 21. And it's this heaven that we need to keep in mind for all the things that I'm going to say this morning. But let's look, turn to Revelation 21 first, and let's read about this heaven. Then I saw, verse 1, chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All of these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I freely give from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all of these blessings. And I will be their God. And they will be my children. This is the ultimate and wonderful destiny that we who are followers of God are looking forward to. And so I want to, this morning, talk to you from this about seven truths about heaven. We did six truths about hell, seven truths about heaven. The numbers are kind of symbolic. There was a Sunday school teacher who asked his class, if I sold my house and I sold my car and had a big garage sale, and I took all the money from my garage sale, and I gave all of that to the poor, would that get me into heaven? And all the children said, no, that wouldn't get you into heaven. So then the Sunday school teacher said, okay, what if I came and cleaned the church every day, and I mowed the yard, and I kept everything neat and tidy? Would, would that get me into heaven? And all the kids in this Sunday school class said, no, that's not going to get you into heaven. So the Sunday school teacher tried again and said, okay, well, what if I was kind to animals? And I gave candy to all the children, and I loved my wife. Would that get me into heaven? And still the children said, no, that's not going to get you into heaven. So finally the teacher said, well, then how am I going to get into heaven? And then one little boy answered and says, well, you got to die first. That's true. The boy was quite correct. Uh, that we have to die if we're going to get into heaven. However, the boy was actually only half correct. Because not only do we have to die to get into heaven, but we have to be raised to life again to get into heaven. As we said last week, so it is true of heaven as well. And that is that heaven has not yet been created. Remember what we just read. 
How does it start? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth have passed away. They have disappeared. Well, it's obvious that the old heaven and earth have not passed away yet. I'm standing on it right now. I can still look through the telescope and I can still see the heavenly realm and the galaxies and and wondering about whether there's life on other planets. We can still see all of that right now. It has not yet disappeared. But just as God created the current heavens, the cosmos, and the earth, so the Bible says that this age is going to come to a close. And when this age comes to a close, and when this happens is at Christ's second coming, the dead will be raised from their graves and will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Like we read last week in Revelation about the day of judgment. It said, the sea gave up its dead. And death and the grave gave up her dead. When does death and the grave give up her dead? When Christ comes back again. Christ comes back. The dead are raised. Then it's the judgment. Then it will be either heaven or hell. Then we will live in the new heavens and in the new earth for all of eternity. This is why Jesus said in John 14, I go and prepare a place for you. But we often stop reading this passage all the way through. Many times I've heard this passage used at funerals as if to imply that that's where people are already. But that's not what the passage says at all. Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. And when it is ready, I will come back to get you. It's a clear reference to the second coming. It's not, I go to prepare a place for you and I'm going to sit there and wait for you to come to me. It's, I go to prepare a place for you. When it's ready, I come back. I come back to get you. John 14 is not about where we go when we die, but about where we go when Jesus comes back and raises us from the dead and takes us to be with him. When I come back and raise the dead, then I will take you to be with me. It's the same thing we read about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's when Christ comes back that the dead are raised and we will meet him in the air. So then the question comes, well, where is he going to take us? We meet him in the air. He's going to take us to the new heavens and the new earth. See, modern day Christians often put the emphasis in the wrong place. We often put the emphasis in what is known as the intermediate state. The intermediate state is that time between your death and your resurrection. So if I drop dead right now, and Jesus comes back in 200 years from now, I'm going to be raised in 200 years from now. The question is, is what happens to me during that 200-year in-between time? I'm not bodily raised yet, because that doesn't happen until the second coming, and I'm now dead. What we need to recognize is that the Bible says virtually nothing about the intermediate state. And it certainly does not put our hope 
in the intermediate state. Even 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul talks about being absent from the body and present with the Lord, once again we forget to read the whole thing. Paul there clearly says that he does not wish to be without a body. He says, I wish to be absent from the body, present from the Lord, but not to be found without a body. Not to be found, he says, naked. I will cast off this tent and I wait for my resurrected, my spiritual tent. I don't want to be without a body. The disembodied state is never described in the Bible as a state of liberation or a state of comfort and hope. The emphasis in the Bible is always on bodily resurrection. What happens in this in-between time, between our death and our resurrection at Christ's second coming, do we exist as some kind of bodiless ghost in a temporary heaven or a temporary hell? Or in some Abraham's bosom, whatever that means, or in some conscious Hades place, or in a state of soul sleep, or are we simply dead and gone and then brought back to life again at his second coming? The church has speculated about that for centuries. The church has never made a position on that a matter of orthodoxy. In fact, the church has reminded us in its healthy points that that's the wrong thing to be focusing on. The hope of the Christian is ultimately in a bodily resurrection. What happens to you between death and resurrection should be recognized for what it is. Guesswork. Speculation, theories based on how you read a couple of lines here and there and interpret certain words, but not something the Bible explicitly teaches on. You can't take a sentence here and a sentence there, and even as I showed you some of these sentences, we don't read the context and we misinterpret them, and try to build a theology on that when Paul does things like all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 50 some verses, he lays out for you a theology of the resurrection. That's where the emphasis is. Resurrection. Resurrection. What we believe about the intermediate state should be held loosely and never used as a measure of someone's fidelity to Scripture. The biblical emphasis upheld in all the early creeds whenever we as a church say the Apostles' Creed and say the Nicene Creed or any of the early creeds, we always say we believe in the resurrection of the body. That's where the emphasis always was. Not in a state of being disembodied. The hope of the Christian is not escape from the body. The hope of the Christian is a body made new. This is so important because it has such a difference on how we understand God's creation, what God's doing, and how we understand the affirmation of who we are as persons. That the body is not a necessary evil, but the body is intrinsic to who we are as persons. That really without a body we are not full persons. That God created his creation good and the church has always protested against new agey or Gnostic types of ideas where it says that real spirituality is some kind of disembodied state. 
that has always been contrary to Christianity. The emphasis is all about this world. That's why Jesus incarnated himself, took on body, became body. Didn't just possess a body, he became body. It's the same for all the earth. God's hope for us and God's desire and what God's plan is for us, just like our bodies, is not to have us escape our bodies, but to help us become embodied beings in the same way it's his plan for the earth. Heaven is not the hope of escaping the earth. As Romans chapter 8 teaches very clearly, and Jesus also teaches in Revelation, the hope is the renewal of the earth. Jesus says in Revelation, look, I'm making all things new. So that heaven is more than just where Christ's resurrected people will live forever. Heaven is where God's earth and cosmos will all be renewed and resurrected and recreated. We will not go into God's heavenly realm and leave earth behind, but God's heavenly realm or reign is going to unite itself with earth and the universe. And so the second thing we see is not only has heaven not yet been created, but heaven will be on earth. As New Testament scholar N.T. Wright points out, Heaven in the New Testament is thus not usually seen as a place where God's people go after death. At the end of the New Jerusalem, at the end, the New Jerusalem descends from heaven to earth, joining the two dimensions forever. Entering the kingdom of heaven does not mean going to heaven after death, but belonging to the present to the people who steer their earthly course by the standards and purposes of heaven and who are assured of membership in the age to come. What N.T. Wright is saying in layman's terms is that what it means to be part of heaven is to mean now to be part of God's people. Not about going to some place. It's meaning to be under God's reign now, his heavenly kingdom, now to be part of God's people, which therefore guarantees us a place in the age to come. The new heavens and the new earth. For instance, a great book that has been written on this whole subject that we have in our library is N.T. Wright's book, Surprised by Hope, if you are interested in reading much more about this. What we see in the scripture is after the judgment, God's people, symbolized by the new Jerusalem, that's what new Jerusalem represents, is us, God's people, they're not taken up into some erythral heaven in the sky. Instead, they are brought down to the earth, but to the new earth. And so God comes back, he gets his people, he raises them from the dead, we meet him in the air, he recreates the earth, he resurrects the earth, and then his people come down, like this new Jerusalem, come down to live in his new creation. Here we actually even have a metaphor of a metaphor. God's people are described not only as the New Jerusalem, but the New Jerusalem is described as a bride. We are Christ's bride. In that sense, also the picture of we are going to be united as a husband and wife are united. God is both our king and our lover now, and in the age to come, 
there is going to be no barrier between us and God. Because we will be united, God's people and God himself. Husband and wife, united together in his new creation. And there in the new creation, heaven will be devoid of evil. Revelation says, and the sea was also gone. We mentioned last week how the sea is a picture of evil. This, when it says that the sea is gone, it doesn't mean that in God's new creation, there is going to be no place to go sailing. Or that there's going to be no lakes to swim in. What it means is that evil is gone. Evil was always depicted in Old Testament or Israel uh, culture and the Old Testament times as the place where evil is from. That's seen also in many other cultures of that day as well. So what we are seeing here is that Revelation is not giving us a photograph of heaven. But using metaphors and similes and hyperbole of things in our current world to describe a world that we have not yet even begun to see. So, when we see the sea as a symbol of evil, it's just like when we look at ancient maps. If you look at some ancient maps, we'll put one up here on the screen for you, you see that in the places where there's water, they drew all kinds of sea creatures and sea monsters. Because in the ancient world, it was from the sea that evil came from, symbolically. And we see that in the Bible as well. So when it says that there will be no more sea, it's the fact that there will be no more evil. In Revelation, the sea is where the beast comes from. In Isaiah, we read, the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. James says a doubtful mind is as, an uns is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Heaven will be a place where that is no more. Evil will be gone. The beast is destroyed. Satan and all of his hosts are destroyed. Sin has been destroyed. We also see from Revelation that heaven is where we will walk with God. Look, the home of God is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. In the new age, we will have no barrier because sin has been destroyed. We will have no barrier between us and God. We will be able in this renewed creation, a picture like the time of the Garden of Eden where God was able to walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. In heaven, we will know God in a more personal way than we know him now. We'll be able to look upon the face of Jesus face to face. And heaven will be devoid of sorrow and death and crying and pain. In heaven, we find rest. Rest does not mean the absence of work, by the way. When God created us and put us in the Garden of Eden before there was any sin, he said, your job is to work it and to take care of it. 
Uh, we should understand that in many ways when we are put into the new creation, we will be there to work it and to take care of it. Rest does not mean the absence of work. We call that boredom. God asked Adam to work in the garden before there was sin. The difference is that sin brought pain, it brought thorns, it brought thistles, it brought the sweat of the brow, and eventually it brought death. Those things will no longer be part of our work. Rest in the new heavenly age also means that there will be no more anxiety. We will have peace of mind. We will be free from our continual temptations. We will rest from the burden of sin that lies so heavily upon all of us. We will no longer see our loved ones die. We will no longer grow weary. We will be able to rest from all of the unhealthy ways our commercials try to give us fulfillment in life. And continually fail. Heaven will also be where our deepest longings and desires are satisfied. And it's not because of the conditions of heaven, though those would be wonderful, but it's because of who will be there in heaven. The one who said, to all who are thirsty, I will give springs of water of life without charge. All of our commercials feed on our fears, our motives, our desires, our greed, our lust. And all of those things leave us thirsting for more. It turns us into consumers and customers and addicts. But Jesus offers us the water of life. And when we take his water of life, we become children instead of consumers. And isn't that a wonderful difference? When we recognize that we are children, not just products, not just consumers. People with identity, loved by God. And heaven will also be filled with God's children. At the end of the section that I read in Revelation today, it says that I will be their God and they will be my children. One of the things that we forget sometimes is that when we become part of God's family, we do become part of a family. There's no such thing as solo Christians. There's no such thing as saying, I love God, but I can't stand the church. I love Jesus, but I don't like his people. You are going to be with his people, so you might as well get used to it now. Yes, we won't have sin there. That'll help a little bit. But we are part of family. When God becomes your father, you get brothers and sisters. Now, I cannot tell you about the furniture of heaven because the Bible doesn't really say much about that. It's funny why that even concerns us. How big is my mansion going to be? Because we go then right back down the commercialized end of things. And heaven isn't like buying a timeshare. I'm not giving you a presentation today, and then at the end of the presentation, I'm going to pressure you to buy now, and I'll throw in a free baptism if you do so now. Heaven isn't like buying a timeshare. You have to choose Christ uncoerced to say yes to him as Savior and King. 
What the Bible tells us about heaven is much more relational than material. What the Bible tells us about heaven is much more about the community of heaven than about the structure and the furniture of heaven. The attraction of heaven is not about the size of your house, but who's going to be there. Which also is one of the things that should stir us on to tell other people so that they too can join us there. Most importantly, it's where we will be with God, our Savior, as we see him face to face in the person of Christ. And where we will be with brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is an inheritance that has been promised to us by our Heavenly Father. When he comes back in the person of Jesus Christ, at his second coming, and the trumpet sounds, and in the twinkling of an eye, all the dead are raised from their graves. New bodies given. Then he creates the new heavens and the new earth. And for all of eternity we get to be in that place. Walking with him forever. Without any barrier. Without any sin. We're all going to die. And we will all be raised to life again. When Jesus comes back. And we will all face the judgment after that. And since we are all sinners, none of us are going to be able to be in heaven in the presence of a holy God. And this separation results in hell. But for those who have had someone stand in their place for them. For those who have accepted the mediator, Christ. The one who came as the king on that Palm Sunday and entered into Jerusalem. The one who there in Jerusalem was crucified, died, and was buried, and on the third day in Jerusalem rose from the dead. The one who ascended into heaven, and then when the Holy Spirit came, to Jerusalem, the nations gathered and heard the message of the Holy Spirit through the disciples and through those who began to speak in all those languages. And from Jerusalem, the nations heard about their king, the king of kings, the one who reigns now. The kingdom of heaven is among us now. And the one who will come back again, this time not on a donkey, but this time on a horse. The conquering king who will come and he will come and make everything new. Behold, I make all things new. The emphasis for us as Christians, whatever you believe in the intermediate state, the emphasis for us for Christians, where we should place our hope, where we should put our vision, where we should put our emphasis is seeing our king riding on that white conquering horse and the dead breaking out of their graves and being raised. That gives me 
tingles down the back of my spine. Much more than sappy stories of floating spirits becoming flowers in God's garden and all that kind of weird stuff. The dead being raised to life again because our king has conquered death. That's what we need to preach as a church. That is the message of scripture. That is the message of the creeds. That is the message of our forefathers. And that is the hope. Those of us who have been accepted have been forgiven by God and been offered a new life in the eternal age with him in the new heavenly realm in which we will live with him with new bodies on the new earth where we will worship and celebrate and work for God's glory for all of eternity. Look, Revelation says, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. When that day comes, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more sorrow. No more crying. No more pain. Because all of these things will be gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I'm making all things new. Thanks be to God that I get to be a part of that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you and we worship you. Words escape us of what we can say. In the fact that you so loved us, that while we were sinners, you saved us so that we could be united with you as forgiven people without sin to live in your new creation for all of eternity. And Lord, when we recognize how important your creation is, how important our bodies are, Lord, we pray that we will honor you now in our bodies, with our bodies, and honor you now in and with your creation in anticipation of how we will live forever in our bodies and in the new creation. We thank you for saving us from sin, from death, from hell, and from all those things that separate us from you. And may, Lord, those who have not yet bowed the knee to you recognize how much you have to offer and humble themselves to surrender themselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.